Hello, everyone, and welcome to A Word Fitly Spoken. I'm Willie Grills, coming at you with a bit of a different episode. Zelwyn Heidi is with Dr. Andrew Steinman to talk about a number of different things, the biblical canon, chronology, and the golden thread that runs even through the Old Testament. Give it a listen. I think you'll really enjoy. This is A Word Fitly Spoken. I'm your host, Zelwyn Heidi, and coming to you today with a kind of an unusual episode because, for one thing, I'm not at home today, and so this is Word Fitly on the Road, currently in Grand Forks, North Dakota Pastors Conference, and enjoying the lovely weather here. But it's also a very special occasion for us because I have with me, face-to-face for once, a very special guest, a Dr. Andrew Steinman. Greetings, Dr. Steinman. Welcome to Word Fitly. Good to be with you, Zelwyn. Why don't you let our guests know a little bit about yourself, who you are, and what you're doing here in North Dakota, and what you think of our fine state. Oh, well, this is my first trip to North Dakota, but so far I'm very impressed. The people have been lovely to me, and the weather's been nice, and you can hardly complain about good weather and good people. (laughs) So I'm a distinguished professor of theology and Hebrew at Concordia University in Chicago. I hold a PhD from the University of Michigan. Master's Divinity from Concordia Theological Seminary in Fort Wayne, and a bachelor's degree from the University of Cincinnati. I grew up in Ohio, so I'm kind of a Midwest boy in the eastern end of the Midwest, and I have always kind of kicked around the Midwest, lived in Ohio, Indiana, a very brief stint in Kentucky when I was a child, Illinois, and Michigan. I've been, you know, around that kind of central part of the country my entire life. I have a lovely wife and two children. My daughter works for the Department of Defense and lives in Cleveland, Ohio, and my son is superintendent of the Lutheran High School Association in Cleveland, Ohio. Wonderful. Two lovely grandchildren by my son's two daughters, whom we enjoy a lot whenever we can get to to Cleveland. (laughs) So... That that's always a struggle in the winter, but the rest of the year we're we're in Cleveland a lot because uh, we really enjoy the family and especially the the grandkids. I'm sure you do. I'm sure. So, what brings you to North Dakota? Well, I'm here for the pastors' conference. I was invited to speak this year, and I'm speaking a little bit about how we know what happened when in the Bible to pastors here. It's something I've written a book about. It's something I'm very excited about because I think that it's it's very helpful for Christians to know how God works in history and what he's done for us at various times and in various places as the scriptures reveal to us. And then as we can fill out with more information, not, from the, not only from the Bible, but also from extra biblical sources. So that's a fun thing for me to do with the pastors. And we had a great time today. This, at least I did. I hope they did too. Oh, it was, it was a very good presentation. I was enjoying it immensely. And I know some of the other pastors were also enjoying it quite, quite a bit. So we, we welcome you to the podcast, and hopefully you can bring some of your expertise to talking about some other rather important questions on okay. today. Well, one of the things that I know that, well, you've, you've written lots of books. I believe you said you were the author of 15 books, yes. including five books in the Concordia Commentary series. But one of the first books that you ever wrote was on the question of the Old Testament canon. Is that correct? That's correct. Okay. Well, what do we mean by 
canon. You know, that's kind of a word that gets thrown around, but maybe we need to just define it real quick. What do we mean by the biblical canon? The biblical canon is the list, if you will, of the books that are recognized as inspired by God and given to his people. The word canon itself comes from a Greek word that originally meant measuring rod. Okay. We have two words canon in English, one with one end, when we're talking about the biblical canon, one with two ends in the middle, which, of course, is the weapon. <laughs> but they both come from the same Greek word, huh. interestingly enough. And uh, so when we talk about the biblical canon, we're saying which books belong in this inspired collection from God's prophets. And of course, then we also have the question of why other books are not in the canon. That is somewhat of a historical question. Why did God's people recognize these books and not these other books? It has a long history. Some of it, the very earliest part of it, shrouded kind of in the mists of history that we don't know. But once we get to the period between the Old and New Testament, we can begin to piece together how this collection of books was recognized, how it was organized, and how we've received it today. We have to ask the question, though. We understand the historical importance of, of why we're doing this and the historical question of, you know, which books and not others. But what is the real practical issue at work here? The, yes, the, the real practical issue is can we be confident we have the word that God has revealed to us, that we haven't left anything out, or that we haven't added something in that really isn't the word of God? And so the practical viewpoint on this subject is how can we rely on this revealed word of God? Why did God's people recognize these books as the ones where God was speaking to his people and guiding them for their faith and their life. And so it does have a real question to answer, and that is, why this? Why don't we include some other books that sometimes you see on TV, maybe on the History Channel, the lost books of the Bible? Why are those <laughs> lost books of the Bible not part of the Bible? Right. That can upset many people, and they wonder, have we left something out? Are we missing something that God has revealed to us? And so the study of the canon is important to assure God's people that we have exactly what he wanted communicated to us in his written word. Well, now, when it comes to, say, like the New Testament, that's a fairly straightforward question for us, right? You know, we're dealing with the question of, you know, what did Jesus, you know, how did he direct his, the early church? What did the apostles have to say? You know, was this written by an apostle? So the New Testament is a fairly straightforward question. But then what about the Old Testament, Right. Because we're dealing with the question of books which come over a very long period of time, you know, hundreds of years, as opposed to just a few decades, like with the New Testament. How do we know that we haven't left out, say, how do we know that what we have is what we have? I mean, let's yeah. kind of start there and we'll go, we'll kind of break that down as we go. Yeah, well, and, and it's a good question because unlike the New Testament, we have a number of books that are anonymous and that there's not even any tradition about who wrote them. So, you know, in the New Testament, we can say, well, Matthew, the, the Gospel of Matthew doesn't identify the author as Matthew, but we have a long tradition going back almost to the time of the writing of the Gospel of Matthew that Matthew wrote it. Where if we look at a, a book like Joshua or Judges or Samuel or Kings, we have no idea who wrote it. 
tradition holds, and again, it's a very long tradition, that these were written by God's prophets, but we can't always put a name to that prophet. So that makes it a little bit more challenging for us. But if we start with the basic portion of the Old Testament canon, the five books of Moses, that has a long history of being attributed to Moses himself as God's first great prophet. Already throughout the rest of the Old Testament, we read phrases like the law of Moses or Moses wrote. So already within the rest of the Old Testament, we have recognition of this first basic part of the canon, the five books of Moses from Genesis through Deuteronomy. So that is a very important piece of information. And you can't, you can't read very far in the Old Testament without stumbling over Moses being mentioned as the author of those books. As early as the book of Joshua and as late as some of the latest books like the book of Chronicles, Moses is recognized as the author of those books. So very clearly, those five books have been received throughout the history of God's people as kind of the foundational books of the Old Testament canon. Now, the question on why did the rest of the books make it in? Well, the basic answer is, were they from someone who was accepted as a true prophet of God? Now, again, we can't always put a name to that. With, of course, the prophetic books we can, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Jonah, we can put names to those, and oftentimes those books name their authors. And so we can actually say, we know this person, we know what he did. Some of those prophets are mentioned elsewhere in the scriptures. So Isaiah, for instance, is mentioned in the book of Kings and in the book of Chronicles. Jonah's mentioned in the book of Kings. So we know these were genuine prophets of God and were received as such. We have some other indications within the Old Testament itself. So for instance, the book of Chronicles uses material out of Genesis, Samuel, and Kings, and even out of the book of Ezra at the very end. So the book of Chronicles, which is probably the last book of the Old Testament written or close to that, very clearly is recognizing these earlier books as authoritative word of God that they can draw on as sources. Whoever the chronicler was, he drew on those sources as part of writing his book. And so that is another indication that these books that we have, many of them were considered before the even Old Testament was completed as God's Word. One thing that, I don't get me wrong, I totally agree with what you're doing, but one thing I've noticed and something that might cause someone to struggle is, is you, you're referring these books to other books, right? So right. the canon is kind of establishing itself. In some sense, that is true, but that's even true in the New Testament. So you have, for instance, Peter writing in his letters about Paul's works as being inspired by God. It's not just true of the Old Testament, it's even true in the New Testament, where you have one apostle, Peter, recognizing the works of another apostle, Paul, as being the Word of God. And so we have the same thing going on in the Old Testament, where we have the later books receiving the earlier books as the Word of God and giving us written confirmation of what God's people were already recognizing, that these books 
were given to us by God. Now, it's interesting, in the Old Testament, we have mention of other books that we no longer have that aren't in our Bible. So they're recognized as books that were written during that period of time, but God's people never incorporated them into the Scriptures, saying that, in essence, we recognize certain books as being inspired by the Holy Spirit, coming from true prophets of God, and we have these other books, sometimes even written by prophets, but not intended to be part of the collection of God's Word. Now, are you talking about the ones you encounter often in, like, Kings and Chronicles, where it says, you know, is this not written in the book of the Wars of the Lord or something like that? Right. And there's even a mention of a book of Edo, who was a prophet in the Old Testament, the book written by Nathan, who's the prophet, of course, that speaks to David and tells him that he's going to bear the Messianic promise and also later on upbraids him for his adultery. There's a book mentioned as being written by Nathan but it wasn't recognized as being intended for God's people for all time. And so the Old Testament people did not preserve it as as part of their sacred scripture. Now, part of this means that historically, there was a recognition when these books were written that, oh, this is the word of God proclaimed to us, and a recognition for other books that that's not the word of God written for us. So already it's the Spirit working in God's people to help them recognize the voice of their shepherd who's speaking to them. One of the things I think you hear fairly often, like we say, like in Roman Catholicism, you have the, you know, external authorities saying like, this is what the canon is, and this is, you know, this is what should be in the Bible. And people tend to think that, you know, that's how we determine what the canon is, is a question of some authority saying, okay, this is you know, what it is, and, you know, we'll just kind of make it up. But I think you're you're quite right to point out that this is God's authority. So, yeah, we'd still accept an authority, but it's the, the authority of the Holy Spirit. Right, and it's the Holy Spirit speaking to us through the Word that calls us to recognize this as the Word of God. You know, I'm reminded of of Jesus talking about his sheep hearing his voice, and they know him. We hear the voice of Jesus speaking to us in the words of the Old Testament. And the Old Testament people of God, when they heard the voice of Jesus in those, they said, this is God's word. This other thing isn't. And so we have some indications already in the Old Testament. Now, admittedly, we don't have a list, say, from 400 or 300 years before Jesus. Here's the Old Testament canon. By the time we get to maybe 400 B.C., all the books that we now have in the Old Testament canon would have been written. The earliest evidence we have beyond that of people among the Jews recognizing a canon comes a little bit later than that. So we have evidence from some of the books that were written in, say, 200 years before Jesus and going forward. Some of these are books that you mentioned before that we call the Apocrypha, In the apocryphal books, they recognize the law of Moses. They recognize some of these other books. One that stands out in particular is a book called Ben Sirah or Sirach or Ecclesiasticus. It goes by three names just to confuse everybody. And in that book, the author of that book actually recycles passages from the Old Testament, and he uses just about every book of the Old Testament to build his 
argument for what is wise behavior according to God's Word. And he has also uh, several chapters where he talks about the heroes of the faith that went before him. And when you chart out the people that he's talking about and see what books of the Bible he's talking about, all of a sudden you realize it's almost the canon exactly as we have it today. He doesn't mention anything from the book of Esther, but of course there's not a lot from the book of Esther that's doctrinally right. prominent, so he probably didn't just have a chance to uh, say anything about that. But he, we pretty much can construct, if we just look at what the author of Ben Sirah writes, we pretty much have the same list of books that we have in our Old Testament nowadays. Going forward from that, if we look at the New Testament, what did Jesus and the apostles recognize as Holy Scripture. Of course, for us, Jesus would be a very important authority for right, that, right? right? And we start looking in the Gospels and compiling it, and again, we find the five books of Moses. We have things like Moses said, the law of Moses, the book of the law of Moses, phrases like that. So we know that that was accepted. We start looking at books that Jesus quotes when he's teaching or that are quoted in connection with the things that Jesus did in the Gospels, we find that, again, we have almost every book of the Old Testament. Again, Esther doesn't come up so much because it, there's just not a lot of call for quoting Esther. But we have pretty much the same list, again, just by looking in what Jesus and the apostles are doing in the Gospels. And then if we add the rest of the Old Testament, it becomes clear that they are pretty much recognizing what we call the Old Testament as the Scriptures in their day. The New Testament hadn't been written yet, but what they had for Scripture, they're pretty much recognizing the same books. If we go a little bit later than that to the ancient Jewish historian Josephus, Josephus writes a book called The Antiquities of the Jews, where he traces the history of his people down to his day. His source material for everything up to the end of the Old Testament period is the Old Testament itself. So he knows the Old Testament books. And then he has a section where he talks about we Jews have holy books that all Jews recognize. He's probably exaggerating a little bit there because there were probably some unfaithful Jews. But... <laughs> All Jews recognize and would lay down their life for and defend. And he says they're organized into sections. The Law of Moses, the Prophets, books of wisdom and poetry. You can think of the Psalms and so forth. And when you match these up with the books that Josephus knows in the rest of his writings, lo and behold, he knows the entire Old Testament canon. And the books that he is speaking about there line up perfectly with what we now know as the Old Testament. So we have this clear New Testament era uh, recognition by Jesus and the apostles and by Jews who weren't even Christians like Josephus, as these are our holy books. Now that, I think, is, is very instructive because Paul reminds his readers that to the Jews was given the oracles of God. What did they recognize? Well, we now know from working through Josephus what they recognized. And it's interesting that Jesus and those who are his opponents among the Pharisees and Sadducees never dispute with him what the Scripture is. 
and they assume that there is a collection called the Scripture. Right. Jesus will say to them, search the Scriptures, they speak about me. Well, they don't come back to him and say, yeah, but what are the scriptures? Does it include Esther? Does it not include <laughs> Esther? Should First Maccabees in, be in? They don't have that dispute. Right. Jesus can just say, search a scripture, and they're all agreed on what that means. And what they're agreed on is what we now know as the Old Testament. Well, we're going to be going into our first break, and I would like to get back to the question of Esther, for one thing, and dealing with some of those kind of trickier books of the Old Testament and why we have them. I'm also thinking of, like, the Song of Songs. But we'll get back to that question right after the break. Every word of God is pure. He is a shield unto them that put their trust in Him. The mission of Word Fitly Spoken is to put the Word of God at the center of all of life. To find out more, check us out at wordfitlyspoken.org. This is A Word Fitly Spoken. I'm here with Dr. Steinman talking about the biblical canon. We've had a, some difficulties with our audio, so you'll have to bear with us. It should work out, but we left off our conversation talking about the Old Testament canon, and in particular, some of the more, I don't, I don't want to call them questionable, but the ones that might give us a little bit more fits. So, when we're dealing with books like Esther, for example, why is Esther a part of the Old Testament canon? Or why is the Song of Songs a part of the Old Testament canon? You know, these they seem to books like books that just don't seem to really fit. I know like Esther, for example, never actually uses God's name, right? Yes. Esther, in fact, is the most unreligious book in the entire canon, Old and New Testament combined. It never mentions God. It never mentions things like prayer or sacrifice or things you associate with Old Testament worship. And so, for that reason, people have always had questions about it from antiquity onward. Among the Dead Sea Scrolls, we have copies of every book of the Old Testament except Esther. And part of that may be that Esther doesn't have a lot of doctrinal impact for us. It's a much beloved story. It's a great dramatic narrative about God rescuing his people when they are under this decree of being able to be killed, but God is never mentioned as actually doing it. Mm -hmm. That's left to a conclusion of the reader. And so I think the reason that Esther becomes a problem is not only because it's unreligious and never mentions God, but also because there's so much dependent upon the reader filling in the blanks. And even in antiquity, it wasn't read a lot. That doesn't mean it wasn't recognized as scripture. 
Most of our most ancient lists of the Old Testament canon include Esther. Occasionally, it's left out or perhaps lumped in with Ezra and Nehemiah, and that's why we don't see it explicitly mentioned. But from antiquity, both Jews and Christians have recognized it as scripture. Jews read it every year on the Feast of Purim. To this day, they recognize it as as a book that comes from God and represents their history. And Christians have perhaps little less use for it, but nevertheless, it's always been a book that's been beloved because of the story of God working through Esther without the author having to hit you right over the head and say, God is working through Esther. <laughs> so, yeah, it is one of the the books that gives us a little bit of a problem because of that. And the same could be said for the Song of Songs. The Song of Songs may not mention God at all. There's one passage in the last chapter that is controversial about whether it mentions God or not, depending on how one understands a particular Hebrew word, which could either be translated as love is a mighty flame or love is a flame of Yah, which is short, of course, for Yahweh, God's name. And so it's controversial as to whether Song of Songs mentions God. Put on top of that, that the Song of Songs seems to be charged with a certain sexual tension that's throughout (laughs) it. You can see why people have tried to keep it at arm's length. And in fact, many of the medieval rabbis said that You shouldn't allow anybody under the age of 30 to read Song of Songs because it'll inflame their youthful passions. (laughs) So Song of Songs has also come under some question over the years. However, going all the way back, if we just use Jewish sources, go all the way back to the earliest post-biblical Jewish sources, they recognize and defend Song of Songs as part of the scripture. A Song of Songs is recognized by the book of Ben Sir that I mentioned before the break mm-hmm. and is used there. And Song of Songs has a theme that we find elsewhere, especially in the prophetic books, that is a love between man and a woman as created by God for that purpose is also a picture of God's love for his people. We find this not just in the New Testament when St. Paul discusses marriage, but we find this, for instance, in the prophet Hosea. We find this same theme in the prophet Jeremiah. And so from antiquity, it's been understood that when we have this love song, if you will, in the scripture, where this man and this woman express their love for one another and anticipate expressing it even sexually within marriage, that this also is a picture of God's love for his church and his church's love for him as their savior. And so while Song of Songs is maybe not our favorite book to read, not the best known book to read, it has a long tradition going back as far as we can trace it as being part of the Holy Scriptures. So when we're dealing with these these books that might cause us a few more problems, we shouldn't approach the question and say like, you know, oh, well, that means we can't trust them. It's just a recognition that there have been some historical 
issues that can be resolved. I mean, is, is yes. that what you're getting at? Yes, and they can be resolved. And I think the other thing we need to recognize, and this is true in both Testaments, not every book of the Bible is as important as every other one. In the New Testament, we seldom use Second and Third John and Jude. Right. We're not willing to throw them out of the Scriptures. We still recognize them as Scriptures. Well, in the Old Testament, there's books that we don't use so often. Lamentations, Song of Songs, perhaps Esther we don't use as often, although probably Esther we're more familiar with than those other two. And so not every book is as doctrinally robust as every other book, but every book contributes a facet to the entire gem we know as the Holy Scriptures. And so some of those facets are bigger and bolder and strike our eyes as more important. And some of them are there to fill out the picture and make it whole. And I like to think of it as, as listening to the symphony. You hear the strings, you hear the horns. Sometimes you don't hear the flute. It's a little bit harder to pick out. Sometimes you don't hear some of the softer instruments in the symphony. But if they weren't there, you would miss them. And I think it's the same thing with some of these books that are maybe not as doctrinally robust, as well-known, and as perhaps as read as much. But nevertheless, if they weren't there, we still would be missing something of the revelation of God to us. I think that's an excellent way of putting it. And I mean, you're thinking like a book like Lamentations, for example, and the, the themes that it brings out of God, you know, bringing down his wrath upon his people and yet still delivering them because his mercies are new every morning. That might be something that might speak to us at certain points or in certain historical circumstances more than it would at other times. You know what I mean? Precisely. Yeah. And, and if you compare that to a book like Genesis, mm-hmm. Genesis very clearly is the most important book in the Old Testament. Sure. And it speaks to just about every facet of our lives as Christians. Lamentations is more of a niche book. <laughs> and it p- speaks to us when we're in a certain place at a certain time. When we're suffering loss like the people of Israel suffered the loss of the temple and of their holy city. And it can speak to us when we realize we have to repent like they needed to repent and call on God for mercy and beg him to hear our prayers again. We don't necessarily need that type of intense experience every day, but when we need it, it's important. Right. But when we were dealing with some of these other books that we were talking about, too, some of these books that were never included. I mean, we've been talking about books that are included, should be included, even if there's some question. But then when we're dealing with question of books that have never been included and should not be included, which we typically call the Apocrypha, why do we not (coughs) include them? The reason we don't include them is because they were not recognized by Jews, and there's no indication that Jesus and apostle and his apostles recognized them as scripture. They had them in their day, and one or two of them are referenced in the New Testament, but never as holy scripture. And so that's the short answer. The longer answer is some of those books are clearly fictional. So the book of Tobit, the book of Judith are clearly fictional, and they have glaring historical errors right away, that this is why they were rejected even in antiquity. Okay, other books are fairly 
historically accurate. The book of First Maccabees, fairly historically accurate book about the struggles of the Jews, you know, in a couple hundred years before Jesus shows up. But nevertheless, were not recognized as coming from a prophet of God. And in fact, it's interesting to note that First Maccabees itself notes that there has been no prophet of God since basically the end of what we know is the Old Testament, hmm. since the days of Ezra and Nehemiah. First Maccabees almost rules itself out <laughs> by its own criteria. But these books were Jewish writings. Some of them were probably written in Hebrew. First Maccabees was probably written in Hebrew. Some of them were not written in Hebrew. They were written in Greek, like the New Testament was. And the Old Testament people of God did not recognize as part of the Old Testament any book that wasn't written in Hebrew or Aramaic, the lang ancient languages of God's people. But doesn't Aramaic only account for a very small part of the Old Testament? Yes. Basically, Daniel 2 through 7 and several chapters in Ezra, two words in Genesis and one verse in Jeremiah. <laughs> so Very small, yeah. <laughs> very small. But the people of God simply did not recognize these. And Paul tells us in the New Testament about the Jews, to them is given the oracles of God. So even though these books crept into many Christian Bibles because they were translated into Greek and the early Christian church, the Gentile church, used Greek as its language, and pretty soon they began to put some of these books in with the other Old Testament books and began to think of them as Jewish books, and therefore they might be Scripture. And so you get to the Middle Ages— and some of these books that we know as the Apocrypha were being treated as scripture. When the Reformation happened, and Luther and the other Reformers went back and examined the historical question, they said, wait a minute, Jesus and his apostles never recognized any of these books as scriptures. No Jews recognized these books as holy scripture, and Paul says to them was given the oracles of God. And so what Luther does, interestingly, is when he translates the Bible into German, he has the Old Testament and the New Testament, and he takes these apocryphal books and puts them in between with an interesting note that basically says, not scripture, but mighty fine reading. <laughs> and the apocrypha, therefore, in a traditional Luther Bible was always there, but not considered scripture. But interesting background about God's people in this 400 years or so between the writing of the Old Testament and the birth of Jesus. The church kept them and valued them as historical sources, but not as scripture. Roman Catholics do recognize them as scripture, but even they call them second-level scripture. They call them deuterocanonical, although they will defend them as scripture because of their traditional position received out of the Middle Ages. Even they recognize them as kind of a second-level scripture. Some Eastern Orthodox groups will recognize uh, some or part of the Apocrypha or all of the Apocrypha, depending on which group you're talking about. But much of the Christian church has said, no, we are going to stick with the books that Jesus and his apostles recognized, that the Jews in his day recognized, and that the Jews had already said that these books are our literature but are not our scriptures. And there's no evidence that when 
any a Jew of Jesus' day or even going forward from there recognize them as scripture. When Jesus speaks to his fellow Jews about the scriptures, there's no evidence that he's including these books. That is why they're not in our Bibles as scripture. And now it's interesting, you know, when many of our Lutheran forebears came over with their German Bibles or Norwegian Bibles or Swedish Bibles, the Apocrypha was in there and they were familiar with it. And it was sometimes read and studied in church, but not as scripture. Right. Because you've been talking about the Apocrypha mostly as books, which they mostly are. But I'm thinking of like the, the additions to Daniel. Yes. How do we know that, I mean, that they are, are additions? You know, we're talking about like Bell and the Dragon and Susanna and all that sort of thing. Yes. How do we know that those aren't actually part of the book of Daniel? Well, for one, they weren't composed in Hebrew or Aramaic like Daniel like, is. Okay. Okay. They are clearly later editions. We even have Greek editions of Daniel without those additions in, and then later versions of Daniel with those additions put in. So we know that they were later editions. The language clearly betrays them as composed in Greek and not in Hebrew or Aramaic or some other Semitic language. We can tell this by the type of Greek it is. <laughs> it's interesting that translation Greek is not the same as composition in Greek. And this can, you know, be teased out by an expert in these books. So we have, you know, good evidence of that. There are additions to the book of Esther. We were talking about Esther earlier. It doesn't right. mention God. There are six additions to the book of Esther, and they correct that problem by mentioning God <laughs> and mentioning prayer <laughs> and making the book much more religious. And again, we have additions of Esther in Greek that do not have these six added portions. And then we have other additions of Esther and Greek that add these six portions. So again, we know they were added at some point in time to the Greek text of Esther, not to the original Hebrew text. So there's good evidence that these additions, we also have some additions to Jeremiah. Again, good evidence that those are later composed in Greek, not in Jeremiah's Hebrew at all. They're interesting to read, and some of them have even made it into our hymnals. So we have this canticle in many Lutheran hymnals, Bless the Lord All His Works, or Benedicte Omnia Opera. It's supposedly the prayer of the three young men in the fiery furnace. That's one of the additions to the book of Daniel in Greek. It's a wonderful prayer. It's based on a style of prayer that we find in the book of Psalms calling on all of creation to praise God. We have Psalms that do this. So obviously the person who composed this knew his scripture and kind of drew on the scriptural tradition to, to say, well, I wonder what these guys were doing in the fiery furnace while they were waiting for Jesus to come rescue them. Well, they must have been praising God. And so we have this wonderful prayer. And it's been used as a canticle in Lutheran churches since the Reformation. So we recognize it as something that is godly, even if it isn't inspired scripture. Just like we have other hymns that we think are, are very godly and glorify God and point us to Christ. Well, so that we see this as an ancient hymn that does the same thing. So it's not that they're not useful. It's just that they're not scripture. 
Exactly. Well, and I, I think that's a great point that you bring out with the hymns, too. I mean, we would certainly say that our hymns are godly and doctrinal and they teach us something, but we wouldn't go so far as to say that they are scripture. So we could say the same thing for the song of the three young men. Yes. <laughs> well, very good. Well, with that, I think we're going to have to go into our second break. So we'll be right back with more Word Fitly Spoken. As for God, His way is perfect. The word of the Lord is tried. He is a shield to all them that trust in Him. The book that sits on your shelf, The One Gathering Dust, Word Fitly Spoken, asks you to once again take up and read. Hear the words of the only wise God and be saved. We'll be right back. are back. I'm your host, Zelwyn Heidi, talking with Dr. Andrew Steinman, and we just got done with an excellent discussion on the Old Testament canon in particular. But since Dr. Steinman is here, and, and as I said in the introduction, we are here in North Dakota talking about issues of time and chronology, I thought it might be beneficial for, for you to talk about why time is so important for us as Christians, you know, why, why is that something that we should even be concerned about? Yeah, well, let's, let's note that the scriptures begin with a time reference and pretty much end with a time reference. So it starts in the beginning, a time reference right there, and it ends with come soon, Lord Jesus, a time reference there. And throughout the scriptures, much of it is narrative about what God has done for us in time. God chose Abraham in time. He brought the people of Israel out of Egypt in time. The Bible tells us at the right time, God sent his son into the world. It was not, you know, just an accident that Jesus is born in the first century among the Romans who ruled the ancient world at that time, but it was God's choice of time to do it right then to save us. So the scripture is replete with God's acts in time. And it mentions time so often that when we read it, we almost read over it. We're so used to it. We have all these narratives about Abraham goes here at this time, Jesus does this miracle at this time, Paul is in Thessaloniki at this time, or whatever. We don't even think about it. But one of the things that the scripture keeps on reminding us is time is a creation of God and is always under his control. When the people of God, both in the Old Testament and later in the New Testament, are pointed to God and his works, they're always pointed to God and his works in time, in specific places, and for specific purposes. And when it talked about how reliable God is, they point back to the things that he has done. We can see his character 
and how reliable it is by things that he has done in history for his people. And so time is integral to the Christian faith. One of the things that I talked about this morning was about how God is both transcendent, that is, he's above space and time, and he's imminent. He's within space and time. And that is one of the things that makes the Christian faith different from other faiths. So you have other world religions that have a transcendent God who's above all things, but they don't have a God who's intimately involved in in their creation. Or they have gods who are intimately involved in creation, but he's not above and beyond it. But in Christianity, we are presented with a God who created space and time, is above it and outside of it, and yet is intimately involved in it and his the lives of his people. When we look at what God has done for us in time, we realize that time is in God's hands. The scriptures teach us this over and over again, but it's so easy to forget. We live in perilous times where we see all kinds of challenges, both personal and as a society. And it sometimes seems as if God has lost control of time and things are careening out of control. But when we look in the scriptures, when we're assured that God did these things at certain times and in certain places to bring forth his plan to save the world, we realize that it may appear that our times are out of control, but it's not. Our God is still in control, and all we need to do is be pointed back to Scripture and Scripture's witness that God controls everything in time. There is an interesting phenomenon in Scripture that scholars have called the historical review. There's five Psalms that do this, that go through Israel's history and march through God brought us out of Egypt. He took us into the desert and he tested us there. He brought us into the promised land and settled us there and so forth. And they review what God has done in the past in order to encourage God's people Israel when they were in pretty dire straits in Old Testament times. This is picked up by the prophets. You can find a review like this in the book of Ezekiel. After the captivity in the book of Nehemiah, we have a prayer led by the Levites when they dedicated the walls of Jerusalem. And it's a historical review of everything God did up to that point to allow them eventually to come back and rebuild Jerusalem and to have the temple renewed and restored. And they rehearse God's acts and time. We get to the New Testament, we find a historical review in the last words of the first Christian martyr, Stephen in the book of Acts, where he talks about what God did in the past and how it culminated in Jesus Christ. Now, of course, the people didn't want to hear. They stopped their ears. They stoned Stephen. But Stephen is standing in a long tradition of saying, look at God. This is the character of God. He's faithful to his promises. He's single-minded in saving his people. And history of God's people and God's acts in history with his people testify to that. When we get to the book of Hebrews, we have a section that's been called the heroes of the faith, 
where the writer of Hebrews does another historical review, and he talks about Noah and Abraham and other heroes of the faith, we might call them, from the Old Testament. And he reviews what God did in the past to reinforce that God brought those to a crescendo in his son and his ministry, his death and his resurrection. So throughout the scriptures, from the Psalms, from the prophets, from Stephen and Acts, from the writer to the Hebrews, we have this emphasis on we know God by what he has done. We know his faithfulness by how he's controlled history and brought about the things that have happened for our benefit. And one of the things that I believe you mentioned this morning, but maybe I was just hearing it wrong, is is not only do we have this historical review talking about what God has done and therefore we can trust him, but in some passages you might say we have a historical preview. I'm thinking of like Daniel 11, for example. Yes. That very detailed, like the Greek king is going to do this and then, you know, he's going to marry this person and all that sort of thing. How would that help us as in well, our faith? Well, when we read Daniel... That last vision that covers chapters 10 through 12 at the end of the book of Daniel, we get this very detailed description of what God is going to do in history under the people that are going to follow the rule over God's people. After the coming of Alexander the Great, you have Greek rulers in this part of the world. And Daniel predicts these Greek rulers the ones that are going to rule in Egypt, the ones that are going to rule in Syria. And of course, God's people are caught right in the middle in Palestine. (laughs) And it's going to be a troubled time. They're going to be persecuted by one of these rulers, a man named Antiochus. And they're, they're going to be the battleground between these Egyptian rulers that are successors to Alexander and these Syrian rulers that are successors to Alexander. And they are going to face all kinds of trouble. But God prophesies through Daniel, like you said, very detailed things. Who's going to marry who? Which king is going to succeed which king? What he is going to do? How he's going to persecute God's people? He's telling them in advance, I already know all this. I know you're going to be persecuted. I know you're going through a trial by fire, as it were, but I'm still in control. I know it before it happens. And when we read that and we see how God used that to preserve his people faithfully until the coming of Christ, we can say to ourselves, the same is true for our day. God may not have prophesied in our day who's going to be the next president or what what king of England is going to marry what woman or whatever. <laughs> but nevertheless, we can look that and say God is in control and nothing happens without his control And ultimately, nothing happens without him using it for the benefit of his church and his people. And so the the book of Daniel, with its preview for its ancient readers, reminds us of that. We look back on it and say, oh, well, it's all done and we can all match it up with what happened. They had to read it and look forward the next two or three hundred years and see it unfold in uncanny accuracy. And in fact, This is so accurate. I didn't get to mention this this afternoon. This is so accurate that critics of the Bible try to claim that Daniel, this last portion of Daniel was written after the facts happened because it is so accurate. 
But all the indications, all the historical indications we have is it was not written after the fact. It was written before the fact. You can't date that last chapter of Daniel that late. And so it's a great testimony to us of God knows even these details, like who cares what king marries what king's daughter, right? (laughs) Right. But yet God cares. He knows. He's in charge. These things do not happen by accident. And so when we get to the New Testament, Jesus is born at just the right time. God brings him into the Roman world to save us from our sins, to redeem us as a people of God at just the right time in history. And St. Paul mentions this in his writings, and he makes it clear that Jesus came at the height of the ages. One thing, again, I didn't get to mention this morning, when you look at the prophets, the prophets often divide history into two sections. They talk about the former days and the latter days, or the first days and the last days. And I usually draw a timeline on the board when I'm teaching this with my students and say, okay, here's a timeline. This is the beginning of all things. This is the end of all things when Jesus comes back. Now, you're God. You're going to divide this into two portions. What is the dividing line? And they get it right away. Jesus. Jesus is the dividing line. The last days begin when Jesus comes. We are in the last days and been in the last days for 2,000 plus years now. And it's interesting that this is how the book of Hebrews begins. In many and various ways, God spoke to his people of old by the prophets. But now in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. And so the prophets recognize this. God has history in hand. He has the former days leading up to Jesus. He has the last days between Jesus coming the first time and his coming again that we're still looking forward to. No, that's, that's an excellent way of putting it. And I think one of the things that you emphasized this morning very well, and something that is emphasized in your book, From Abraham to Paul, which we will include a link to in our show notes for this, is that God's control over time is so great that we can actually narrow it down to real historical, even very narrowly historical <laughs> events. I mean, even down to like saying like, this is the year that this may have, you know, this, this yeah. happened. Why would that be a comfort for us as Christians? I mean, why is, why would that level of detail in historical accuracy be something that Christians should be concerned about? Well, first of all, I think it makes the, the story of the gospels come alive. For instance, we can narrow down, we can determine the date when Jesus was born. We can determine down to the day when he was crucified, when he rose from the dead, when he ascended into heaven. We can tell you the day and year of the pouring out of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost. It makes that come alive because now we can set it in the wider Roman history. We can say, okay, this is what was going on in the rest of the world when God was doing these things. So that in itself, I think, makes the scriptures seem more three-dimensional instead of just stories that we learned in Bible class. They become three-dimensional whole stories. But going beyond that, it shows us how carefully God had this recorded by his prophets and apostles, that when they are talking about 
Jesus rose from the dead on a certain day in a certain year in a certain place, that they're not talking myth. They're not talking pie in the sky, but they're talking about real historical events where God intervened in our world because we are so precious to him. He became flesh, he rose from the dead, and he did it in time, and he did it at the right time. And that gives us confidence in the message of the gospel. I can't prove everything that happened in Scripture and give you a date for everything. But there's enough that Scripture tells us and enough that we have from sources outside the Scriptures that dovetail with that, that there are times that we can give an exact date or maybe narrow it down to a month. And in cases of the Passion account and the crucifixion, we can do it pretty much hour by hour because the Scriptures tell us that. The scriptures don't tell us that simply because they were kind of obsessed with details. They tell us that because they want us to know that God is interested in our times, in human history. He's the master of human history, the creator of human history, the controller of human history, and the one who wants to save humans in history through Jesus Christ. So I think it's a fascinating thing. Knowing the chronology is not knowing the scripture, but knowing the chronology gives you the scriptures from a new dimension and helps you see that these are real stories and not just, as many of the critics of the Christian faith would say, cleverly devised myths, to to quote one of the apostles in the New Testament. (laughs) But these actually happened in time. I know, like, and sometimes when I've had Bible study, I've had some of the members at my church say that, you know, it's one thing to read the Bible, but it is another thing to see, like, for example, in the Old Testament, to see the prophet in the situation that he was, to learn something about, say, like Egypt, to learn something about the ancient Near East, really makes it seem... Well, like you say, just much more alive. It's not just a a story, but this is a historical account that we can trust for that reason. And I think with, with Jesus, for example, being able to say that, you know, even down to the hour during his passion, that we can say this happened then, this happened then kind of thing, helps us to really see that this isn't just something we tell our kids. This is our real Savior suffering at a real time in a real place for us so that we might be saved. Yeah. I think there's there's something beautiful in that. Did you want to add anything more to that? or? Well, I just want to say that I think many Christians would be surprised about the number of things we can actually date in the Bible. I believe I can tell you which seven years were the seven years of famine when Joseph was in Egypt. <laughs> That's okay. great. Now, you know, that is is something with some of the prophets who tell us it was such and such year a king and such and such a day. Now, they give it to us in their ancient calendar, which is not our calendar. We can convert those into days and our months. And so I can tell you, the prophet Haggai prophesied on these days and give you month and day and year in our system of counting calendars. I think that, you know, the scriptures actually become more meaningful when we realize to what detail God is assuring us 
of the words of his prophets and the reliability of his holy word. In the past, people have doubted, and and still today, people have doubted the historical accuracy of God's word. The more we learn about history and chronology, the more we find out that God's word is absolutely accurate and absolutely reliable. And in fact, in the 20th century, we were able to use things mentioned in the Bible to correct what secular historians thought about the history of the ancient Assyrians and Babylonians. That's how accurate the scriptures are. That's wonderful. That's wonderful. All right, with that, we're going to go into something a little unusual for our podcast. We're actually going to take a third break, and Dr. Steinman has graciously agreed to be on with us for one more subject. So we'll be right back after the break. We are back. I'm Zellan Heidi talking here with Dr. Steinman on a variety of topics. Dr. Steinman actually has been asked by some British evangelicals to contribute to the Tyndale Old Testament commentary series. Well, he'll be producing uh, the Genesis volume. And that's supposed to come out in June, you said? June. Okay. At least in England. Maybe it might take a while to get across the pond. Yes. <laughs> But one of the things that Dr. Steinman wanted to talk about, and I think is extremely interesting, is talking about some of the the connecting threads of the book of Genesis. So do you want to explain what you mean by that and why that, you know, why that would be helpful for us? Yeah, well, when we normally read the book of Genesis, we follow the story from Adam and Eve through the generations down to Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, Right, and, and the 12 sons of Jacob as the book ends in Egypt. And we think of it kind of as a connection of stories about a people. But there's a golden thread that runs through it that often is missed. And that golden thread is the book of Genesis is not just telling us where the people of Israel came from. It's telling us about the promise of the Savior from the beginning of God's promise in the Garden of Eden to the time when we get to a people that's beginning to be formed in Egypt that we will know as Israel. And throughout the book, this promise of the Savior becomes more and more specific and more and more tied to what God is doing with the people of Israel. Can you have unpack that? I mean, what kind of examples do we have of that thread that yeah. you're talking about? Well, the first comes right in the third chapter when we get the sin of Adam and Eve mm-hmm. and they rebel against God. God comes to them, you know, confronts them in the garden and they play the blame game, you know, right? Adam, what'd you do? Well, it was the woman's fault. What'd you do, Eve? Well, it was the snake's fault. And of course, there's no place to go at that point. Satan is stuck. And so God goes back up the chain and he starts with the serpent. 
in his curse on the serpent is also the first promise of the Savior. So God promises there that a seed of the woman, a descendant of the woman, will crush the serpent's head. This is the first promise of the Savior in the entire scriptures. From the earliest Christians on, this became known as the first gospel. And so we have a promise there to Eve and to Adam, of course, that they would be bringing forth a Savior, and it would come from a human line. So we already have the Savior as human as well as divine here in the first gospel in scriptures. I don't remember if any, or I don't know if any of your uh, listeners will remember that Mel Gibson movie, The Passion of the Christ. Sure. It opens up in the Garden of Gethsemane with Jesus there praying, and Gibson does an interesting thing there. He has a snake slithering on the ground and Jesus stomping on the head of the snake. Gibson got it. That's not in the Gospels, but it's actually based on this first promise of the Gospel already to our first parents. Well, we quickly follow the promise down. We get, of course, Cain and Abel in Genesis chapter 4. And then, interestingly enough, we follow two lines from Adam. One line is the line of Cain, and we follow that down briefly at the end of the fourth chapter. And then we learn Adam had another son, Seth. And we follow the line of Seth for 10 generations till we get to Noah. Now, if God made a promise that the seed of the woman, the descendant of Eve, is going to crush Satan's head. It's got to go through Noah because he's the only one in his generation (laughs) that survives. Right. But what's more important is which son of Noah, Ham, Shem, or Japheth? Well, when Noah gets off the ark, we have this interesting story of him laying in a vineyard, Mm -hmm. having a little bit too much wine to drink, and he's laying naked in his tent. His one son, Ham, sees him, and instead of, honoring his father and covering him up. He has to go gossip about his father being naked to his other two brothers who walk in. They won't even look at their naked father, but Shem and Japheth cover him up. Mm -hmm. And when Noah wakes up from his drunkenness, he prophesies to his sons, prophesies a curse on Ham's son, Canaan. He promises blessing to Japheth, but he, interestingly enough, he does not promise anything to Shem. Instead, he blesses the God of Shem because Shem is the new bearer of the Messianic promise. Which line should we follow? We should follow the line of Shem. So very quickly, the the book of Genesis tells us about what happens to Ham's descendants, what happens to Japheth's descendants, and then it starts another line from Shem 10 more generations to 20th generation listed in the Bible after Adam is Abraham. Abraham, again, is one of three boys Mm -hmm. of a father. Which of the three boys is going to get the promise? We've been following basically this promise down through the generations. Well, we find out in Genesis chapter 12 that God calls Abram. And he says, leave your home leave your family and go to the place I will show you. And Abraham obeys and does this. 
And we have seven times that God speaks or appears to Abraham and gives him promises. There's various promises. He promises him the land of Canaan. He promises him that those who bless him will be blessed and those who curse him will be cursed. He's going to protect him. But the most important promise is, in you, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. How is that? Because Abraham is going to be the ancestor of the Savior. And God's going to bless all nations through him. Interestingly enough, Abraham is also promised that he will have a great name. Now, this is one thing I quiz my students on. In the Old Testament, who has a great name? They usually go Abraham, David, and then they can't get number three. And I wait and I wait. And every once in a while, I get a student that finally the light turns on. God. Abraham is given a great name like God Hmm. because he's the bearer of God's great promise. Yeah. And so he's, he's the only one in the book of Genesis that said, I'm going to give you a great name. Hmm. Well, then the next story, of course, with Abram is his struggle to have children. And he has Ishmael through Hagar. You know, it's, he's urged to do that by his wife, Sarah. But then there becomes problems in the family. And Abraham wonders whether he's going to have a son with Sarah at all. At one point, when God shows him, shows up and says, Abraham, I'm your great reward. I'm going to bless you. Abraham says, oh, that Ishmael may live forever before you forever. But God says, no, the child of the promise is going to come through Sarah. And so now we follow the promise to Isaac. And when Isaac is born, he becomes the child of the promise. And very quickly, we follow Abraham's life until it climaxes when God says, sacrifice your son Isaac. Now, this is a very dramatic story. A lot of people know it, but they don't realize oftentimes the promise of the Messiah being tied up here. Abraham follows God's instructions. Sacrifice your son. Take your son, your only son, Isaac. Go to where I show you. Sacrifice him. Abraham does this, takes him up the mountain. Isaac even, where, you know, we've got the fire, probably coals they're bringing up. We've got the wood, but where's the sacrifice? God will provide the sacrifice, Abraham says. God is confident. I mean, Abraham is confident of God's promise. And he raises that knife. He's willing to plunge it into his son and kill him. And even though he knows that he's the child of the promise. Why is he able to do that? Yeah, It'd be like putting an end to the promise itself, that Jesus would not come in a sense. I know that, you know know what I mean, right? Exactly. But why is Abraham willing to kill his son when he knows the promise for all mankind, the blessing for all nations Hmm. depends on him? Because Abraham believed that God had power even over death, that he could raise his son from the dead. Now, Isaac isn't the one to rise from the dead, but he's pointing forward Mm -hmm. to the one who will rise from the dead. So very quickly after that point, Abraham pretty much fades from the story. We get a little bit more about Abraham, and then we get to Isaac. Now, Isaac's a transitional figure because the next great promise, of course, is going to one of his sons. And we get the story of the two sons. What do we learn there? Well, Well, when they're already in the womb, 
we're told the older will serve the younger. This is a hint of the Messianic promise again. The Messiah is going to come through the younger one. God promised that to him. Part of the tragedy, in the, I think, in the story of Jacob is that he and his mother conspired to get the blessing that they didn't need because God had already given him the greater blessing. And what happens is that Jacob ends up having to flee. Esau wants to kill him, right? He has mm-hmm. to flee to Uncle Laban. Mm-hmm. He never gets to see his mother again. That's a good point. She's dead by the time he comes back. So great tragedy in some sense there because they didn't just rely on the promise of God. Nevertheless, when Jacob flees, we have the famous story of Jacob's ladder, right? Mm -hmm. And God promises, I'm going to bring you back here. He He repeats the promises to Abraham. And throughout the story of Jacob in Padanaram with Uncle Laban, there are hints of the promises again to Jacob. When he comes back and he's worried about encountering Esau, he wrestles with this mysterious man at night, and he won't let go until he gets the blessing, right? Mm-hmm. He knows this is no, not just any old man, but this is God himself whom he's wrestling with. And this is why his name gets changed at that point to Israel, which sounds a little bit like Hebrew for struggles with God or wrestles with God. And he gets this blessing from God. God reinforces the messianic promise to him. Well, he has eventually 12 sons and one daughter. And the question comes up, which son gets the blessing? Well, we start following Joseph very quickly. And you might think Joseph is the one that's going to get the blessing. He goes down to Egypt. God gives him these these dreams. And, you know, he goes down to Egypt and eventually saves his family from the famine But interestingly enough, Joseph doesn't get the great messianic blessing. When we get to Genesis 49, after they've lived through all this, they've come down to Egypt, Jacob is on his deathbed. He calls his sons in around him, and he begins to go through them pretty much in birth order, not exactly in birth order, but he starts with the oldest son, Reuben. And he says, Reuben, you were my firstborn, the sign of my virility, but that's not going to last because Reuben slept with his father's concubine. Unstable so he, as water. Yeah. So he's, yeah, unstable <laughs> as water. So he's clearly not going to get the great messianic promise. Then he goes to the next two sons, Levi and Simeon. He talks about them and how they did wrong. They killed these men of Shechem and brought dishonor on the family. They don't get the promise. And then, and it's very dramatic when you read it in Hebrew, Judah, you, your brothers, will praise. As if almost Jacob's eyes are opened up at this point, and he sees where the promise is going. Now, that's a play on Judah's name, because Judah's name means praised. You, your brothers, will praise. And then it talks about the scepter will not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff between his feet, until, and this is a, a big controversy on how to translate it, but I think it's translated until to him whom it belongs comes. He's talking about Judah will be the ruler of the tribes of Israel. 
because the promise of the Messiah is going to come through Judah. As we get to the end of the book of Genesis, we get this great promise now that's been traced from Adam to Seth, down Seth's line to Noah, Noah's line Shem, down Shem's line to Abraham, to Isaac, to Jacob, to Judah. And the story of Genesis is not just a story of where did the people of Israel came from. It's the story of why are the people of Israel important? Because they are the bearer of the blessing for not just themselves, but for the entire world. In you, all nations of the world be blessed. A promise that's repeated to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. And so the story of Genesis is the story of Jesus. And that's a great way of really tying it up because when you're able to see that golden thread going through all of it, you're able to see, like you say, the the, the point, the driving force behind all of these stories. Because it's not just, you know, oh, look at what happened to these guys, but it's this is why. This is what we're driving forward. One of the things that I thought, and maybe just in the last couple of minutes that we have here, that I thought was interesting is like when you said how Jacob and Rebecca, for example, contrived to get a blessing which they didn't really he didn't really need because God was going to bless him anyway. And we, you know, you also deal with some of the, the the fallibility of all of these men. I mean, they're not they're not perfect by any means, and Genesis never presents them as such. But when we're dealing with the promise of the Messiah, and I'm thinking also like with Judah and how he fathers Perez through right. Tamar, right? Right. We don't want to be distracted from that golden thread. You know, all this right. all of this sin going on around it. What can we take away from that too? Well, what we see here is. God's commitment to his promise, despite his people's sinful fallacies. That Abraham twice lies about who Sarah is, but God is so committed to his promise to save the world that he's not going to let Abraham's sin derail it. He's not going to let Jacob's sins derail it. He's not going to let Judah's sins knock it off the course. God works through these fallible, sinful human beings to bring about the salvation of the world. And that the part of the point of Genesis is that God can accomplish this despite the sins of human beings. And that should be a great comfort to us, that God can also accomplish his will in our lives despite our many sins. You might even think of like Adam and Eve you'd think that their sin would just derail absolutely everything, yes. right? And, I mean, in some sense we say that it does, but in fact, God still promises the Savior that, yes, even you plunging humanity into sin and death is not going to stop me from keeping my promises. Is there anything you'd like to add in, in closing? or Well, just one other thing. We follow this thread down from all these people in, in Genesis We don't get to narrow down the Messianic promise again until we get to 2 Samuel 7 and the promise to David. Which of all the people out of the tribe of Judah get the promise? Well, we go centuries. And then finally, in 2 Samuel 7, God reveals that David gets that promise. And from that point on in the Old Testament, the prophet's often point to David as the bearer of the Messianic promise. And when we get to the New Testament, Jesus is proclaimed by people who believe in him as son of David, which is a Messianic confession. They're saying, I believe you are the Christ. 
You are the Messiah promised by God. So this thread that runs through Genesis, it seems like it drops off, but God has not forgotten about it. He renews it with David. And then, of course, he brings Christ, who's acclaimed as the son of David, the true king of Israel. All right, this has been A Word Fitly Spoken. Dr. Steinman, thank you for being with us. You're welcome. It was enjoyable. This has been A Word Fitly Spoken. If you like what you heard and want to know more, check us out, wordfitlyspoken.org, facebook.com slash wordfitly, or Twitter at wordfitly. God love you, and God bless. Judah, thou art he whom thy brethren shall praise. Thy hand shall be in the neck of thine enemies. Thy father's children shall bow down before thee. Judah is a lion's whelp. From the prey, my son, thou art gone up. He stooped down. He couched as a lion and as an old lion who shall rouse him up. The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor a lawgiver from between his feet until Shiloh come. And unto him shall the gathering of the people be, binding his foal unto the vine, and his ass's colt unto the choice vine. He washed his garments in wine, and his clothes in the blood of grapes. His eyes shall be red with wine, and his teeth white with milk.